0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So this is another opportunity for questions, comments, discussion. So any anything anybody would like to share or ask? Could you pass the mic up?
1: Um, I'm wondering if you can speak to, uh, like, aversion versus, in terms of um, using loving kindness. to oneself when um, there is suffering um, versus or just if if that can lead to um, a layer of, of suffering by using that
0: so as I understand the question it's it's kind of looking at when there is suffering um, maybe a little bit of When is it skillful to just be watching that? Versus when is it useful to bring in a tool like loving kindness? And and can it even be that using loving kindness might be Mm -hmm. a layer of aversion? Yeah,
1: like should I be doing tonglen instead of loving kindness? And you know,
0: yeah. Um, This is a great question, and there's not again, there's kind of not a a one answer. It a lot depends on what's happening for you and and what's going on in the mind around making those choices. Um, so um, you know we we can bludgeon ourselves with metta. <laughs> you will be kind. You will experience metta. Um, and so it's it's kind of looking at how are you, what is the relationship, what's the attitude And kind of the attitude piece that we've been looking at is a skill that we can uh, recognize as we're making choices around our practice as well. So for me, for instance, um, metta was a particularly challenging kind of practice. I have a a lot of experience with aversion. Aversion pretty much has been my orientation to the world um, through much of my life and the kind of classic antidote to aversion in the Buddhist text is metta and yet for me trying to bring metta to my experience created so much tension and so much pain and suffering you know I tried for a while but I, I finally just had to kind of give up with that and so you know the different minds will have different um, doorways and different proclivities and different resonances and so we need to each look for ourselves at what feels like it's skillful it does take a little bit of being; it takes some being honest with ourselves about it because we can have all these ideas in our mind like I should be able to do metta you know, I, I definitely had that belief until I just had bludgeoned myself with it for so long and it's like this is not helpful Finally, came to that understanding that it wasn't helpful for me, um, and yet the practice of allowing my experience when there was aversion, you know that that ex- exploration of bringing a kind of a, an open heart and compassion to the meta it, to the aversion itself began to work on my mind around the aversion and began to create a container of kindness. That some years later made it possible for me to come back to the Metta without that real harshness to it, without this kind of, you know, beating myself up around it. So I would say that, you know, if you find it useful to use the Metta when there's um, aversion or Tonglin, if you have a, you know, you know that practice and you're familiar with doing that practice, if it feels supportive for you, if engaging in that practice feels like, oh, yes, thank you, Uh, this is helpful, then by all means use it. You know, use it if it feels supportive. If it feels like it's more effort, if it feels like it's more um, tying you up in knots, then it may not be the right tool for you at that moment. So it's um, really individual how how it works. Yeah. Thanks. You want to ask something? Okay. Can you uh, <coughs> can you speak to how to practice uh, with impermanence within this style? So um, there's different levels of impermanence. Um, you know, the most obvious, or maybe not, not so obvious, but just the, the kind of uh, the grossest level of impermanence is kind of recognizing, acknowledging that um, you know, we're all going to die, um, and that is often a an understanding that we have. I mean, we all know we're going to die, but do we really know we're going to die? Um, So, so, you know, sometimes we can practice with impermanence in terms of using reflection to help us incline towards really opening to some of the truth of impermanence. Using the reflection, you know, at one point... um, The teacher Carlos Castaneda. Some of you may know Carlos Castaneda. Um, he was asked, apparently, I heard this, uh, this, read this somewhere. He was asked, apparently, at some dinner uh, by someone who said, You know, I just really cannot connect with the spiritual life. I, I try practicing, but I, I don't have much of a connection with what it means to have a spiritual life. And Carlos Castaneda is said to have responded, reflect daily on the fact that you, your loved ones, your family, children will all die and in no particular order, you have no idea what order you will all die in. You will soon have a spiritual life. And so, inclining the mind to think about impermanence, basically using it as reflection. And in this practice, I mean, this practice is basically a tool for opening to what's happening in our experience, moment to moment, and yet we can also bring in themes and then see how are we with those themes. So, reflecting on um, the impermanence of our life, you know, yes, I am going to die, Letting that in. How does it land? How much resistance is there? And so we may um, bring up a reflection like that and it feel like just a wall. Like not much there. And yet keep keeping to explore it. Keep dropping it in. Keep reminding ourselves, I am subject to aging. I am subject to illness. I am subject to death. I have not gone beyond aging. I have not gone beyond dying. This is the nature of life, bringing that reflection in, and what I would encourage with that is not just to use it as thoughts, but see how does it land. You know, so this practice, we look at how do thoughts impact us, and we can bring thoughts in consciously, and then see how do they impact us. Are we resisting it? Are we fearful? Are we confused? And uh, slowly, we be- we can begin to. Um, maybe have a new relationship and a more honest relationship with that fact of impermanence, of just our everyday, you know, the everyday kind of impermanence. And similarly with other kinds of impermanence, kind of more obvious forms of impermanence, um, you know, things that we like break, things that we um, have a relationship with change, I mean, just the kind of everyday change our emotions change, our relationship to people change and so really beginning to understand that change is a, is in the fabric of, of our lives and so much of our suffering comes from resisting that change. So again, you know, as we start to notice suffering, you know, often our suffering is related to the fact of impermanence in some fashion. You know, it's... It's um, the, the three key aspects of experience that the Buddha points to as being the truths of our experience. And the first one of those is impermanent. Experience is impermanent. Our lives are impermanent. We are subject to aging, sickness, and death. Experience in our um, our day-to-day lives, our relationships, our jobs, our homes. I mean, it's like... We impute permanence to things. One day, uh, just recently, I heard this story on the news. I was listening to the news one night, and um, the story that kind of struck me in the moment was that there had been a plane that had taken off from, I think it was a Riverside Airport and the LA area, and it had crashed into some homes. It's like, yeah, you know, even sitting here in my home at night, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. You know, so we, we think what we know what the next moment will be. We think we know that in the next moment we'll all be sitting here and having this conversation, but we don't know that. The possibility, I mean the possible, a plane could fall onto this building. Very unlikely, but, but possible. And so that the fact of impermanence is so shot through our lives and yet we don't actually open to it. We don't actually uh, acknowledge it. So that the reflections about that can support us to open to impermanence. Um, and again... You know, similarly to what I just described, reflecting on that kind of a grosser level of impermanence we we look at what our relationship to it is you know how how am I with this? am I resistant of it? Do I not even want to think about it? Do I just want to you know just ignore it have a sense of not important to look at in my own um, practice around this is i I begin to really open to the, the deep nature. I mean, like that night when I was sitting there reflecting on, wow, you know, a plane could fall out of the sky and crash into my house and my home would be gone, my life might disappear in an instant. It didn't create, and it doesn't seem to create, a sense of depression or hopelessness it actually creates more of a sense of urgency and more of a sense of a connection to what I have in this moment. And so we think sometimes that bringing in a reflection on impermanence will um, be depressing or or feel like, I don't want to look at that because I don't want to have to think about it. But when we actually do it and connect to it as Carlos Castaneda points out it brings a kind of a purpose and meaning and a spiritual connection to our lives to open to that truth to really open to it and then the deepest level of impermanence or the most subtle level of impermanence is oh I was going to say something earlier I almost forgot this Um, these three aspects of experience impermanent, unreliable, out of control Um, it's like the the first the the most primary of these truths that the Buddha points to in our experience is this impermanence and in some ways the other two are what we could call corollaries or, or natural outcomes of that first one it's like things are impermanent and because they're impermanent no experience actually lasts more than a split second any sense of permanence that we have is created based on our concepts. It's created based on ideas in our mind. Every single second, things are vanishing and changing. And so any sense that we have of something being permanent or stable, um, we may... Uh, we're, we're imputing that sense to that experience. And the... Um, the core of the first corollary of impermanence is that because experience is so unreliable, I mean so unstable, it's unreliable. It's not a place where we can finally land and say, yes, getting this experience, having this thing, this is going to do it for me forever. I'm going to be happy forever now because I have this thing. That's part of the mistake that our minds make around impermanence. I mean, that we, we impute permanence and we make the mistake. We think, oh, this is what's going to do it for me. Finally, I can land on this thing. And then if we start to watch and we notice, we see, no, actually, it, the, the, the happiness of landing on that experience or having that thing doesn't last that long. And so experience is unreliable. There's nothing that's in that that's 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 inherently a, a place where we can land and say yes, this is going to do it for me so the impermanence of experience points to this unreliability of experience and also the impermanence of experience also points to the uncontrollability of experience that we can't figure out how to make it be the way we'd like it to be all the time so these uh, these of these three aspects, impermanent, unreliable, out of control, the impermanent nature of experience is really kind of primary and what we start to see through our meditation practice is just the rapidity of how how quickly things are changing. Um, The key in exploring this, is that probably as you start to open to, and, and it may happen just in little brief moments. You know, maybe, maybe for, uh, you know, it, it it generally takes a a little bit of stability of mindfulness to begin to see, wow. Everything in my mind, a thought comes in and disappears, and, a, and an emotion you know I see it being constructed, and then it vanishes, or a sensation arises and passes away before I even have a chance to really know whether it 's uh, pleasant or unpleasant, just the kind of the rapidity that we start to see that that happens more as mindfulness becomes more stable as mindfulness becomes more established to see this kind of very Flux nature of experience, um, and it can be very unsettling when we start to see that. So the first piece, if you if you start to see this kind of, it almost feels like we're trying to walk on quicksand. It's like every step is like oh, there's no place to land. You know what am I going to do? It's so it can feel very unstable and uncomfortable as we explore and experience um, impermanence in that way, sometimes it's, it's actually part of how this practice deepens in a way to begin to reveal this very unstable nature of every moment of experience. And a big piece of how we work with that is to notice our relationship to it. That's the key, is this feeling of instability is happening. It's like, ooh, nowhere to land. Okay, how am I with that? Fear is what's happening. Not trying to like force yourself to to, like land on every single thing, but recognize, wow, this feeling of things just slipping away as soon as I meet them. It feels, it creates a feeling of fear. And so noticing that relationship We have many different relationships to this truth of impermanence that unfold over the course of our practice. Um, Sometimes it's this relationship of fear. Sometimes it's a relationship of delight. It's just like, wow. It's like you're magically watching the world coming into being and it's like, wow. So sometimes there can be a, a, a delight, and we can get stuck on that delight, and then it might switch, shift to fear it 's like, oh, everything 's vanishing there 's nowhere to land it might It might shift to something like uh, um, what 's the right word um, oppressiveness, like we 're just being like every second it's like enough seeing, smelling, hearing, tasting, touching already. It's, "Ah, I'm feeling like I'm overwhelmed by sense contact. It's like, so uh, it can sometimes feel oppressive, this like just bombardment with sense experience. Sometimes it can, we can feel just like, oh yeah, okay, seeing, smelling, hearing, tasting. So it can move to boredom. It can feel like homesickness. There's lots of different flavors. You know, sometimes the homesickness flavor might come if there's a sense of wishing we could go back to that delusion of permanence. I wish I could pretend things weren't like this. And so a feeling of like yearning for that delusion again. So many different relationships unfold as we explore the experience and so, if you are noticing a kind of a rapidly changing experience of impermanence, really important to check the attitude, their relationship, and uh, try to hold both you know it 's like, okay, yeah, change is happening, and fear is happening, change is happening, and boredom is happening. Just notice that relationship the the deepening of the practice around impermanence. It's like basically what's being revealed is all the ways that we resist impermanence. All the ways that, you know, at the deeper and deeper levels of our being, we say, no, it's not right that things are impermanent. No, it's just, it is a fundamental flaw of the universe. It's not right. And at very deep levels, we have these relationships And what we're doing is working our way through those depths of relationships. And the mind begins to understand how all of those relationships add a level of suffering. And all of those relationships are also impermanent, (laughs) unreliable, uncontrollable. So really I think the the biggest piece of that is... uh, noticing our relationship, actually at all those levels. I think each piece I talked about when we notice or reflecting on the thought of I'm going to die, you know, bringing that reflection in, I encourage you to notice how you are with that reflection, you know. What comes up for you? No, I'm not going to die. No, no, I don't want to die. No, No, I'm going to die and I don't like that idea. So how, how we are with those reflections, and then as we meet the the kind of more moment-to-moment or direct experience of impermanence, noticing how you are with that in the moment of that experience. Thank you. Uh, So I wanted to ask... um, can we get attached to a certain style of practice? And my context for this would be, I started more with the um, traditional, you know, focusing on one thing, uh-huh, uh-huh. and then now, you know, it's been almost a year, I've introduced to this receptive awareness, and I definitely resonate more with this style. And so, I remember last time I was at a residential retreat where it was doing the... The more directed uh, yeah, style. Um, and I had a aversion to that. And I'm <laughs> like, oh, why can't I do the one I like to do? So <laughs> I just maybe you can comment on that. So yes, the mind can get attached to anything. <laughs> Even wholesome things we can get attached to. Um, and and there is, I mean, so so yes, the mind can get attached to a particular style of practice. Um, and be resistant or aversive to um, to other styles of practice. But, you know, actually in that moment you could have just simply used the practice of like, oh, what's arising right now is aversion. Aversion to being told I should practice with directing the attention. Okay, well, what's that like? And what's that about? Um, so, you know, just a curiosity to bring the that practice of exploring the attitude or the relationship will be helpful to Reveal the attachment, you know. Reveal the attachment to a particular style of practice, for instance, or you know anything. Um, it's possible. I mean, again, there there can be mixed motivations. I think I talks about talked about mixed motivations earlier today, where um, maybe some of that aversion is, you know, just like i don 't want to be told what to do. this practice works for me, and I, I want to do that you know, so it can kind of be uh, a kind of a, an aversive relationship, but also there can be um, some wisdom that recognizes this style of practice is is more um, uh, it 's creating the conditions for deepening of of understanding right now, and you know for myself, I found that. There were periods of time where trying to do directed attention just hooked into my habit of over-efforting. And it wasn't so helpful for me to do that. And so stepping into the open awareness practice really supported a letting go of that over-efforting. And so there were times when I could recognize, yeah, well, maybe there is some aversion to that, but there's also also a good reason or there's a, a wholesome reason why to, uh, to explore this. What I would say um, in general, however, is that it, when you go to a particular teacher and they're teaching something, it's usually helpful to um, try on what they're offering. You know, let yourself step back from your views, your opinions for now. It's like, well, okay, I do want to do that my own way, but this is what they're offering. And so I'll just see how it goes with this style for this time. And that may be a little bit of, like for me, stepping into that, that, um, that more directed practice at times, that's partly what showed me, oh, this, this is hooking into an old habit of over-efforting. And I don't seem to be able to consciously decouple that. So maybe I shouldn't go to retreats right now that are teaching that style. So you know, I, learning from what we're what we're exploring, what we're experiencing. So we can definitely get attached, uh, and yet there can also be um, wholesome reasons for wanting to head in a certain direction. So just being aware of the of the possibility for mixed motivations there. And it's time to stop. So um, I want to end just these last couple of minutes with uh, a kind of a... uh, aspiration, let's say, that the, the benefits of our practice may the work that we've done today and for those of us in the retreat, may the work that we've explored to open our hearts and minds to our own experience be the cause and condition for a connection with humanity be supportive for not only our own well-being and happiness but for the happiness and well-being of all beings everywhere. This way that I think we all know to some extent how contagious um, anger and hatred can be. But this practice of mindfulness and exploring compassion and understanding, opening to impermanence, opening our hearts This is also contagious. And so may our practice be of benefit, not only to ourselves, but to all beings everywhere. May all beings be happy, healthy, safe, and at ease. May all beings know peace.